From Deuteronomy 32, here we go. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? He found him in a desert land and in the howling wasteland of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as an apple of his eye. But Israel grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. And then he forsook the God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You are unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. (sighs) Ouch. Okay. (laughs) The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous and those who are no people. With those who are no people. So the people, and then there's the no people. I'm going to make you jealous with these no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. As if the fires were enough, he's going to heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They will be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of the beasts against them and the venom of things that crawl in the dust. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine, and recompense from the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants, when he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, Where are the gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices, and drank the wine of their offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. Did you know God has like a sarcastic thing going on? (laughs) Sorry. Okay. See, now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to the heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. That's a lot of blood. And my sword shall devour flesh with the blood and the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice in him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song. It will be a good song to sing on Sunday morning, right? That's a very happy song. Just kidding. (laughs) 
<laughs> in the hearing of the people. And he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take heart. Take heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do the words of the law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Well, good morning. So thank you, Emily Hall, for leading us in worship. Thank you, Emily Rickard, for reading that very interesting passage. What what a thing to make your wife read, right? So, Merry Christmas. Hope you've enjoyed getting gifts. Uh, Now, as we look forward to the new year, let's bathe in the wrath of God. Sound good? So, I I promise that there is a reason uh, that we would highlight such a passage. Can I come down just a little bit? And it is good news. Um, I hope to get us to the good news during our study today, uh, but like any Chad Rickard sermon, I find it necessary to wade through awkward, uncomfortable truths first, so that when we get to those beautiful truths, we will find them to be full, rich, full of depth, rather than superficial, irrelevant in the real world. Weeks ago, when Cliff was walking us through Romans 9, as a church, we wrestled through some of these more challenging truths about God and the way that He has chosen to interact with us, including the process of salvation. Uh, Romans 9 evoked great conversations within our congregation as we had to wrap our heads around statements about God's actions that don't really compute within our current culture. As we discussed the wrath of God, I couldn't help but picture the imagery found in Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's an absolutely brilliant sermon. Uh, Ironically, I had the pleasure of teaching it for years within the public school system as a part of American literature. Uh, While our public school system rarely wants to expose students to the beauty of the Bible and theological writings, honestly, this is just my opinion, uh, I think this sermon is a staple of the public school system because from their perspective, it makes Christians look horrible. Um, A cursory and ignorant reading of this text by critics allows them to discuss God as this bad-tempered toddler, right, who stomps on ants for mere pleasure. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is also generally taught within a unit in which we examine usage of pathos, right? So emotional appeals, manipulation. Critics claim that Jonathan Edwards uses fear tactics about burning in hell to trick people into converting during the Great Awakening of the 1700s. But I think Edward's sermon and the wrath of God is misunderstood for the same reasons that Romans 9 is misunderstood by Americans. So as I've been pondering Romans 9 and Edward's sermon for the past month or so, I've decided it would be helpful for us to look at a few of the key ideas of his sermon and the biblical text that he alludes to, in order to help us better understand the God of the Bible. Cool? So that's our goal today, understand the God of the Bible a little bit more. Let me begin by giving an overview of our three objectives today. We want to confirm three truths in our theology so that we have a proper understanding of why God carries out actions that may not align with our contemporary American mindset. 
So here are three points. Uh, first, it is essential that God is a God of wrath. Second, it's essential that God is a God of mercy. And lastly, it is essential that God's perspective is bigger than our own. So looking at that first one, it's essential that God is a God of wrath. <clears throat> and our issue is we don't understand the need for a God of wrath because of our cultural disposition. Second, as we look at the God of mercy, we don't understand God's mercy because we misinterpret the imagery of things like Jonathan Edwards' sermon and the biblical theology it represents, right? That, that passage, it was rough. <laughs> How do you see mercy in that? And yet, it, it is all within that passage. When we see images of, of God's wrath, the Bible also is conveying that God's mercy is present, acting against his own wrath because no other being could mitigate his wrath. That's going to be a big point for us today. And lastly, again, it's essential that God's perspective is bigger than our own. We don't understand the choices of God because our perspective is finite and man-centered. Um, I do have notes for you. It's a piece of paper, and it's blank. What color is it? Ah, I like, you like that? You like that? Huh? A little, little wrathful, you know. Huh? You see what I did there? Yeah. Each of these essential truths can be seen in Romans 9 through 26, which we started a few weeks ago. First, Paul puts our opinions in their proper place, noting that God's perspective is infinitely larger than our own. And therefore, we weren't given a seat at the board meeting, right, when God decided how he would write history, right? So we see this in Romans 9.20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Second, Paul posits that God is capable of having wrath for a specific intention. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Paul then moves that this wrath finds part of its purpose when God counters his own wrath with mercy. This is a strange visual for us. For those whom he has called, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, and finally, Paul demonstrates how the three essential truths of our sermon today come together for the purpose of framing the greatest heroic act of love of all time. As indeed it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. It's weird. That's a weird passage, and yet it is absolutely beautiful. And we don't get that beautiful conclusion without all of this richness and complexity. Time and time again in Scripture, we see the intertwining of these three truths. To remove any of these three chords will be to create a structure of logic that is nonsensical and to create a love that is weak and shallow, which... Honestly, I think it's what is around in our societies today. With that overview, let's move into more detailed analysis of the truth that we struggle with in 
21st century, as Americans, it is essential that God is a God of wrath and justice. You guys doing good? Getting some notes? Remember, I'm a teacher, so if I don't see notes being written, I, I feel like I'm not doing my job. Look at that. So, again, it's essential that God is a God of wrath. We don't understand the need for a God of wrath because of our cultural disposition. And so to help us understand God's wrath, we need perspective from other cultural scenarios. Through Jewish history, Jews have called out to God for justice in the form of wrathful vengeance. The Psalms are full of such pleas. David writes in Psalm 109, this is another long passage for us to go through. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate, attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. <clears throat> Appoint a wicked man against them. That's crazy, right? This is David's call. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his widow, a wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruit of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. Wow, David. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. It's another song we'll be singing next week, right? Uh, it's got some real good, you know, turn the other cheek kind of stuff, right? No. David is hurt. He feels wronged. And he's asking God to execute all kinds of wrathful actions against his enemies. God, take everything they have. Kill them and leave their wives and children to suffer. Even more extreme, right? Don't forget their sin. That's huge. You realize the extent of what David is asking God, right? You ask the God of the Bible not to forget someone's sin. You're asking God to send them to an eternity of hell. Now, I'm not saying I understand David's hatred for his enemies. I don't. That's the point of why we're doing this, right? I've never had an enemy so hostile that it led me to wish hell upon them. I've had enemies. I played sports, gotten fights all the time. I was a really bad when I was a loser, right? Every game I lost would end with me fighting someone. My parents will testify to this, right? I've been one of several suitors fighting for the same woman. I've had bosses try to fire me for living according to Christianity. I've had enemies. But my concept of an enemy pales in comparison to those experienced in various places in the world. It's nothing compared to what David experienced in his life. So it's very difficult for me to fathom the call for wrath that David makes to God because of my cushy, middle-class American existence. We question God's wrath because we don't live in paradigms in which this value 
is prominent. Israel, unfortunately, has always been plagued by such an existence. They've been persecuted since their time in Egypt thousands of years ago, and they've continued to experience this throughout history. The genetic nation of Israel arguably reached the pinnacle of persecution within Hitler's attempt to complete genocide. Elie Weissel writes in his book, Night, of it losing his faith in the God of the Torah because of his silence. He writes, For the first time I felt anger rising within me. Why should I sanctify his name? The Almighty, the eternal and terrible master of the universe, chose to be silent. What was there to thank him for? Later he adds, Some of the men spoke of God, his mysterious ways, the sins of the Jewish people, the redemption to come. As for me, I had ceased to pray. I concurred with Job. I was not denying his existence, but I doubted his absolute justice. Within the Holocaust, Jews echoed the cries of David. Why are you silent, God? Why don't you do something against our enemies? Where is your righteous indignation and justice on our behalf? We don't seem to be burdened with that question in America. We've experienced kind of a unique context historically and geographically in which we're allowed to have meeting places of worship with really no public ramifications. We experience only persecution of laughable levels. So we don't understand the cry for wrath and justice. This is why it's extremely important that we be exposed to other contexts and time and space in which God's wrath is overtly essential. In 2014, when three Israeli teenagers were kidnapped and murdered by terrorists, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was quoted saying, May God avenge their blood. Robert Yatov said, I call upon the justice system to sentence him, the, the supposed uh, murderer, to death. When we are wronged, we want wrath to occur. Wrath is an action that demonstrates love. Strange, right? If you wrong someone that I love, my reaction of anger toward you demonstrates my strong desire for those I love to be treated with respect. Again, my hope in this point is to help us understand why it is essential that God is able to act out of a state of wrathful anger. This is not a philosophy that makes sense to us in America because we know very little about large-scale warfare on our soil. While we all have family and friends who fight on behalf of America, very few of us have experienced the years and years of persecution and death that exists in some areas of the world. I want to read this article by a contemporary Jewish writer to give perspective on the role of God's justice in our psychological well-being. She writes, After every attack, terror attack here in Israel, I I wait in trepidation. For someone to start calling for revenge. I suppose it's inevitable. Fear and grief do not bring out the best in us. And after all, do we not say God will avenge their blood? Is this not an endorsement of revenge? No, it's not. Rather, it's an affirmation in the belief in ultimate justice when it is needed most. I really, this, this line coming up is just huge to me if you want to get this one down. Healing from trauma is dependent upon belief in justice. 
the unfairness and injustice of what we've gone through is part of what traumatizes us. It's long been known that the trauma from a natural disaster is considerably less than from a human-caused disaster, even if the actual loss is of the same magnitude. It is the injustice of it that hurts. It undermines our sense of belonging, our ability to relate to the world, and to trust others, even to trust ourselves. When hearing of a death, we say, blessed is the true judge. In face of the ultimate loss, all we can do is to accept what has happened and affirm that what happens is part of God's plan. The affirmation implies acceptance on the deepest level. But what can we say when facing real the reality of atrocity? Are we expected to praise God when our loved ones are brutally murdered before us? It would be asking us to be either superhuman or completely inhuman to see it all as a part of God's plan in those moments of grief and pain. When faced with a wrong so great that it defies our ability to bless the true judge, we recognize our human limitations. We don't try to say what we can't feel. Instead, we say, God will avenge their blood. And so we express our pain by an affirmation that justice exists even if we can't see it. We need words to express our outrage and our intuitive cry for justice. We need a way to give vent to the anger, the sheer inability to come to terms. We need to acknowledge that nothing we do can redress the wrong done to us. And yet the belief in ultimate justice is there underneath the pain. We express our need for justice, for revenge against those who have wronged us, We allow the outrage in us to cry out for your jests, and then we let it go. We appoint God as our avenger, and we let go of the need. And I think this is a great last sentence. Cosmic justice is left to God. Amen? Israel has experienced persecution throughout its history and has cried out for justice continually. I find these words from this contemporary Jewish writer extremely helpful as she attempts to reconcile this need for justice with the contemporary philosophy that personal revenge and vendettas are not actually psychological, psychologically helpful to the victims. It is the knowledge that God's wrath will ultimately bring about justice that allows us to be at peace and forgive our fellow humans when they wrong us. When someone commits a crime against me and is not punished, that ruins my ability to feel secure and safe in the future. Knowing that God's wrath will bring about justice creates cosmic security. Amen? We're about to move on from that point. Take, take a moment. Get your last notes about the wrath and why we need wrath and justice. How are we doing? You guys still with me? See, when I'm class... If I'm in class and I'm talking this long, I get kids up and out of their seats for a while. So maybe we should start doing that. Three, three different points during the sermon. Everybody do 10 jumping jacks. Our second point of today, it's essential that God is a God of mercy. We don't understand God's mercy because we misinterpret the imagery of things like Jonathan Edwards' sermon and the biblical theology it represents. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is characterized by literary critics as a picture of this Christian God as a bully, right, waiting to pounce. 
But that couldn't be more of a misinterpretation. Such an interpretation requires that we ignore important aspects of each example of imagery. I wanted us to do like a full analysis of this sermon. It's so good. Check it out when you get a chance. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. We're just going to do one small passage. He reads, man, he's so intense. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. You are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back. That are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury. Is this a picture of God's wrath? Absolutely. But more importantly, it's an incredible picture of God's mercy. To understand how merciful God is, we have to understand how much wrath humans have stored up. Humans have been sinning for at least 6,000 years, and according to Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Every moment that we are not righteously destroyed by God, the amount of wrath that is deserved is piling up more. So again, we see that God's mercy is demonstrated every second that he holds back this wrath. We have to see God's wrath and his mercy as two great forces in the world. Jonathan Edwards beautifully explains this through his imagery of the floodgates. God's hand of vengeance can only be stopped by God's hand of mercy. There's no other force in the world that can hold back the amount of wrath that we deserve. Only God's mercy and long-suffering, His patience, can do that. We don't understand the scale of His mercy because we don't see the scale of the wrath He's holding back. We have to remember that when we see the images of God's wrath, the Bible is also conveying that God's mercy is also present, acting against his own wrath, because no other being could mitigate this wrath. Remember, the presence of both wrath and mercy are necessary to bring about repentance. This is apparent in Luke seven forty-one through 47 We have this story of Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman, right? Jesus comes into the house of the Pharisee, and the Pharisee finds absolutely no value in Jesus. However, the sinful woman sees clearly the good news of a Messiah. She's aware of her need for a Savior because she sees the consequence for her sin as an eternity of wrath. The Pharisee sees no urgency to be forgiven because he's unaware of this floodgate of wrath that he has stored up to punish him for his sins. So Jesus says in Luke 7, 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is a beautiful story of repentance and salvation for the sinful woman, and it stands in contrast to the Pharisee story of arrogance, and I would assume his pathway toward hell. Mercy is absolutely essential. Or the sinful woman in the story would be doomed for hell. However, we have to see that the wrath is also essential 
For if she had not been made aware of her guilt and eventual punishment, she would have continued in her sin without repentance. If she would have continued without repentance, she would have eventually died, right? And then spent eternity away from God. This would have been far worse as an experience than seeing the wrath of God on earth. Therefore, it is important to see that the wrath, that God's wrath is ironically one of his most merciful qualities. His wrath and mercy are two sides to the same purpose. His plan to save his people to live with him for eternity in heaven. So, gotten through two of them. Wrath and mercy, both essential. And now it's essential for us to see that God's perspective is bigger than our own. Take a second. Take a second. Get some notes down. Look at you guys writing. I like it. Gloria's got a, a trap for a mind. So it is essential that God's perspective is bigger than our own. And again, our, our issues with that, we don't understand the choices of God because our perspective is finite. It's man-centered. We don't understand the need for God of wrath because of our cultural disposition. Our problem with wrath of God is due to our cultural bias. So I want to spend some time and kind of shape uh, our cultural bias. 21st century American philosophy, right? It sits within these tenets of postmodernism. First, there is no God. That's huge, right? We have to remember this about the context we live in. Postmodernism flows out of modernism, right? The era in the 1800s, which declared God non-existent. Nietzsche made the statement that God is dead. Darwin created the theory of evolution to attempt to explain our origin without God. Freud created psychology to attempt to explain our motives without God. This is where we live. This is what we're starting with. There is no God. Second, we're starting with this idea that there is no absolute truth. The same modern, modernist philosophers that declared God dead created the theory of existentialism. Existentialism is the idea that there is no teleological explanation, right? No purpose for the human life since there is no creator. There's really no reason that we're here. It just kind of happened. Kind of depressing, right? Want to be an existentialist? I'd rather not. Next, there is no single path to happiness. This is a big deal in the postmodern world. Right? The Bible gives clear guidelines and actions and heart motives that lead to happiness. If the God is, of the Bible is dead, these guidelines die with him. And there are no more prescriptions for happiness. Next, happiness, truth, meaning, these are all concepts defined by the individual not surprisingly, even the term individualism right, was coined in 1820. This is in the middle of modernism. As we pursued the creation of meaning, now that there was no God to give it to us. And so therefore, taking all of these ideas, for me to cohere to a set of behaviors, right? this could be cultural, communal, familial, religious, covenantal, they must appeal to my desires. I must be convinced how I benefit benefit from going along with the group. Take a look at a second and just look at, at this list, right? So before we get on to la- that last point, this, this is what God is up against 
when we have these kind of conversations. When we have these conversations about why did God, blah, 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 he has to fit it in all of this for us to buy into it. Impossible, right? Impossible for us to fit the God of the Bible into postmodernism. This is the context we live in, and it influences the way we form our theology. This is why we sinfully approach the Bible through what we call eisegesis, right? Eisegesis, placing our own beliefs, such as postmodernism, into the biblical text, rather than exegesis, allowing the truths of the Bible to alter our beliefs. We flipped the script on religion. We flipped the script on the Bible, on a covenant with God. The Old Testament narrates the God of the universe coming to his creation and detailing the terms of a covenant with him. In fact, to make sure that the power for this covenant was not misunderstood, in Genesis 15, what does he actually do? He puts Abraham to sleep, right? He makes sure that it's clear where the covenant is coming from. God sets the terms of the covenant with Adam, with Abraham, with Moses, but in postmodern Western society, we want to attempt to set the terms with God. I'll go along with your religion, God, if. And then we fill in the blank with whatever guideline makes sense within our narrow perspective. This should appear ridiculous, right? But we are so ignorant sometimes that we don't see how silly it is for us to try to set the terms with God. This is the kind of scenario that Paul is putting in front of us in Romans 9, again, in this passage that we've been struggling with. It's this reason that he gives us the analogy of the potter and the clay. Who are you, O man? Who are you to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? This passage challenges our perspective of self and God. It reminds us who is in charge of setting the terms for the covenant, for salvation, for creation. Has the potter no right over the clay? What an analogy, right? It has to make us feel stupid if we're honest, right? What level of insubordination does clay have to have to talk back to a potter? And the analogy isn't even strong enough, right? Because a a potter molds clay, but it doesn't invent clay. God spoke us into existence. He created the chemicals that compose us. He created the air that we breathe. He manifested the oxygen cycle so the breathing is possible. We could go on and on, right, about how much we depend on God for our existence. The potter has every right over the clay. God has every right over creation. We are not peers. That's been one of the most confusing situations I think we've put ourselves in within modern Western culture as we've attempted to dismantle hierarchy in the name of democracy, right? Democracy has a number of tenets I absolutely love, but it has taken us far away from our understanding of lordship. We were created to be ruled, to be governed by God. And that's really confusing to us as Americans. Is he a loving king who earnestly seeks what is best for his people? Of course. 
but he is not holding forums so that he can create policies that align to current cultural trends. He's just not. He wrote the whole of history before he allowed it to unfold, and he isn't taking suggestions to see it edited. Does the clay have any right to say to the potter, well, you know, I sort of envisioning a change in direction. You know, potter, art has changed a lot in the last several millennia, and uh, I was thinking you should really go along with the current trends. Your ways are almost seem as offensive these days. When we were in Romans 9, Cliff walked us through this line of thinking in the book of Job, right? In the Old Testament, Job gets absolutely reminded by God just how big the disparity is between us. God asks a series of rhetorical questions that clearly display the naivete it requires for a human to project an air of righteousness or even blamelessness before God, even if from a human standpoint, you are. Job 38 verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God lands probably 20 questions in a row like that, right? Then he ends this, these rhetorical questions with a statement filled with sarcasm to seal his point. Job 38 verse 21, You know, for you were born then. The number of your days is great. Yeah, you're pretty important, right? No. You ever catch yourself having these types of conversations with teenagers or even toddlers where they have this audacity to question your decision-making that's clearly found in logic? You have to stop first yourself, right? And then you have to stop them in their thinking. Sorry, three-year-old. We are not peers. I don't care if you think you're entitled to play Fortnite for three hours or you know, get snacks all day, whatever the argument is. We are not peers with God and conversations about His actions and His motives for those actions. We weren't there when the Trinity put history into place. We've never created a universe. We don't know how to go about it. I remember early in my career as a teacher, I would become frustrated when I had a class that found my class boring, right? And so uh, the kind and open-minded teacher that I was, I, I really did this. I would put out surveys to them of changes, changes that they would make to improve uh, the instruction. And for some reason, I was always surprised by the result. Believe it or not, I was never given groundbreaking ideas from the students for how to make my instruction more meaningful and relevant. What types of suggestions do you think I got? No homework? More breaks? No more reading? Right? Right? Yeah. Don't ever make me read what you want me to read. Right? Yeah? Here's what I got, right? More movies, less homework, fewer essays, fewer assignments, easier assignments. They weren't complaining about my system because they wanted a richer, more rigorous, more relevant education. Right? They were complaining because their hope was to decrease the expectation for what they would accomplish in my class. Now, this is an analogy, and all analogies fall short of being perfect parallels, but I find this truth to be accurate in our American complaints about God. We don't want to give him constructive feedback to create a better world. We want to decrease the expectations and requirements for humans. 
We want to make excuses for ourselves and our fellow man, but we don't want to see the perspective of the creator of mankind. We don't stop to think that maybe, just maybe, his plan is more perfectly thought out than our own. A toddler doesn't get to advise me on how he should spend his waking hours. Likewise, a person who hasn't even lived a century has no place advising an infinite God on how to orchestrate a plan of salvation for his people. Amen? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if, right? What if wrath and mercy are essential parts of God's plan? What if God, right, see this passage differently. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. The very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. It's a beautiful passage. In some of our minds, it's unfortunate that deities don't consult with their creations for how universes should be run. But God did not orchestrate history with only you in mind, only me in mind. We have to stop being so conscious of how we want God to act. I know I'm constantly guilty of this as I argue with God about why certain events occur when I don't understand them. We have to stop being so arrogantly ignorant to think that we could have devised a better system. Romans 9 demonstrates that God authored a beautiful love story for a beloved that did nothing to deserve his love. We have the opportunity to be loved by an infinitely impressive God for eternity. Why would we make light of this opportunity? Why would we want anything else? I want us to end by looking at Psalm 73, which intertwines the purposeful wrath and mercy of God. Psalm 73, again, it's another kind of lengthy passage I want us to get through. Beautiful. Verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. This is the passage that Jonathan Edwards is focusing on, that verse right there. Psalm 73 goes on, How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And now it's going to talk about me. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. Right? We see that? It's the same, same people. You were like this, guess what? So was I. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. This is the same people. The same people that deserve his wrath. And look at what we're getting. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. 
whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's focus on this last stanza. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. That is true. You do put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. It is essential that both wrath and mercy are part of God. Because it's the combination of his wrath and his mercy that leads us to confession and repentance. This state of confession and repentance is our only hope for happiness in this life. As it turns us to Christ, the only source of good and happiness. So I want to take this idea of what we want in postmodernism, right? We're pursuing that happiness. And I want you to see that wrath is the way we become happy. It's ironic, right? In Psalm 73, 27-28, this stanza holds crucial pieces of our theology. It is a fact that all those who are separate from God will perish. It's just a fact. While this is true due to the wrathful punishment of God, it's also just a natural law. Right? Say, stay with me here if we can get kind of philosophical. To be within the presence of God is to be in the presence of all things good. With me there? Therefore, to be in the absence of God is to be in the absence of all things good. What could possibly exist in a place that is absent of good? Take a moment just to fathom that existence. A universe that is stripped of anything that has redeeming qualities, that is in and of itself hell. This is for wrath, and yet it's just the natural place that these people are running to on their own merit, on their own desires. This is the both and that we talk about when we talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. To run away from God is to run toward the absence of God. That's, there's a term for that destination. It's called hell. The stanza also holds the nature of the opposite truth. To be near God is to realize that everything you want is right here. If God is good and the absence of God is the absence of good, then within the presence of God is the only logical place to be if you want an existence that is good. That thinking is pretty straightforward, right? And this is where God's jealousy, right? Well, let's throw another weird characteristic of God in here. His jealousy becomes very interesting here. Yes, God is jealous. If he's called you unto his own, he's not willing that you leave him for another God of any kind. Because he knows that what you're seeking can only be found in him. We have this philosophy about love in pop culture, right? If you love someone, let them leave. If it's true love, they'll come back. Oh, that's sweet. I'm not going to speak to whether or not this exists and it works in human relationships. I don't know. But the equation is absolute idiocy if you expect it from God. God, let people go, man. If it's meant to be, they'll come back. No. 
Absolutely not. God is completely 100% jealous. He will not take that risk. Not because it will be a loss for him, but because the result would be hell for you. He loves you too much to allow you to walk your desired path to hell. And this is another dangerous aspect of our current culture's belief system, right? We're being taught that being open-minded is the most loving you can be. Accept people for who they are. Let them stay that way. Don't try to shape someone. Love them exactly as the way they are. Never ever ask them to change who they've always been. I'd like to see what that philosophy looks like in a preschool, right? Never really met a preschooler that should be left exactly as they are forever. Our culture is promoting a kind of universalist spiritualism. Always lead to happiness, so to each his own. Don't dare alter the course of a loved one if they get involved with an activity or a person or a belief system that makes them happy in the moment. We have to be conscious of this philosophy because it can subliminally shape our thinking. This philosophy makes us question God and the actions of the God of the Bible when in actuality, right, it should be flipped. It's our culture that needs to be questioned. Universalism is not a statement of love. It's not. You want to show love to your neighbor? At some point, at some point, that love has to include letting them at least come to uh, let you speak the words of John 14, 6, right? Jesus says what? I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's love. It's exclusive. It's the opposite of universalism. It's completely offensive to anyone who, anyone who is bought into postmodernism. And it's the only way to truly lead someone to an eternity of happiness. God's perspective is bigger than our own. It's bigger than postmodernism. The God of the Bible is the only being with a true understanding of what eternity will look like. He's the only one who can truly fathom what heaven will be, what hell will be. He has designed eternity and is calling you to be in his presence for eternity because being in his presence forever will be infinitely amazing. And being in the absence of God for eternity will be an unfathomable nightmare. It would not be loving for God to say, you know, if it's true love, you'll come back. I'll be waiting. On the contrary, the Bible is composed of story after story of God's chosen people idiotically running away, running to other lovers, and God responding by stealing their hearts back with mercy and love. The Bible is full of stories of individuals who are running their hellbound race and God interrupted their stupidity with actions that bring about these beautiful words of Romans 9. Where you are not my people, you shall be called my people. Amen? God's usage of wrath and jealousy and mercy are all key pieces of his rich and multifaceted love. God's wrath and jealousy and mercy are important, and in our current postmodern culture, 
We want to take the eisegesis approach, right? We want to put our beliefs into the biblical text and impose our culture's definition of love on the creator of the universe. First, this is arrogant and ignorant. More importantly, if we were to be successful, if we could be successful in confining God's love to our own definition, the way we want love to be enacted by God, we would be shortchanging ourselves concerning the richest and fullest love that has ever existed. Let us not question the aspects of God's love when they do not align to our current cultural perspective, but rather question ourselves when our perspectives prove finite compared to the infinite author of love itself. Amen? Let's pray. God, we don't understand. God, you produce actions that we will never understand on this earth. And we are within a generation and a time period in which we want clear, logical answers for everything in ways that make sense to us. But God, you are infinite. You have given us enough. You have given us the gospel. You have given us the good news that we deserve wrath, that every one of our actions is bringing us towards hell, that that's our purpose, that's our joy, is to go towards hell. And yet, God, you intercede. You show mercy. You shake us from what we want. You change our beliefs, our faith. You enable us to do things that we could not do because it is no longer that we that live, but Christ who lives in us. God, we pray for this this vision, this knowledge, this awareness of the beauty of wrath and the beauty of mercy that together these things make for a beautiful love. These are the things that enable us to repent, to turn away from our own desires, and to find the truth that truly leads to happiness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.